0: In the name of the true and loving God, amen. Well, it may be a surprise to see me in the pulpit this morning. It's a bit of a surprise for me. Our wonderful rector, Rob, was not feeling well yesterday evening. And in spite of testing negative for COVID, he thought it was the wisest thing to do to stay home. Well, both our readings from Acts and from John they take people into new waters and kind of set them off on new or different paths after something unexpected happens. So on a much, much smaller scale, I invite you into new waters for this sermon after something unanticipated has happened. I'm going to share with you this morning in large part what Rob hoped to share with you with a few of my thoughts thrown in there too. So Robert Leacock was a friend in seminary of Rob's who tended to say very amusing and very truthful things. And he said that to be the person who had to defend Paul would be the worst job in the world. Paul was a real guy, and it showed. He was passionate and brave, sometimes arrogant, sometimes humble, sometimes trying to be humble, but really arrogant, sometimes even admitting that he didn't have all the answers. He threw some temper tantrums. He was often loving and caring. He was always opinionated. He also wrote in crazy run-on sentences, which kind of adds a little bit more fun into the mix. Now kind of as a little side note, but I think a little important to flag, that not everything that's attributed to him was by him. So maybe that'll get him as an individual off the hook a little bit. In some cases, some of the letters or the epistles in the New Testament that are attributed to Paul, scholars now realize that they are in this kind of Deutero-Pauline category. Fancy word. But it really means that they were written kind of in the style and spirit of Paul by people who were followers of Paul and in this Pauline school of thought. And it was kind of an honorific thing to do to write in his tone and style and continue in his way of teaching so for example some of the challenging words that are found in first timothy about women in authority women in relation to men verses that would lead you to believe that paul would have been pretty upset with me standing in this place preaching to you they fall into that deutero pauline category It's also important to remember that many of Paul's writings are letters, and so we should read them as letters. They were written to specific people, at specific times, about specific things. So they weren't really um, blanket universal statements that are meant to be applied in all situation. Context, as always, matters big time when reading Paul. It's also worth teasing out all that's going on with Paul though, because in much of his writing, there is a great deal of gold to be mined with how and what he wrote about to those early Christian communities. In a large way, his understanding of love and grace and the cross, that has become the foundation for Christian thought, in particular, Western Christian thought. What he had to say has shaped the world's understanding of Christ ever since he wrote it. And with this exalted place in the establishment of Christianity, it can be easy to forget how Paul started out. He wasn't Paul to begin with. He was Saul. He was a Pharisee, a zealous and a jealous defender of the Jewish faith against this upstart group within Judaism, a group of people who followed a person named Jesus. They weren't yet called Christians. They were called people of the way, as we hear in the Acts of the Apostles reading. And he openly approved of having these people killed. We hear that in today's reading too. There was no mercy. The Bible makes no attempt to hide this, and Paul would admit it in his own letters. This was all the case up until his conversion experience on the road to Damascus, which we heard just the opening part of in today's Acts of the Apostles reading. This encounter with the risen Christ, it produces a radical change within Saul. It results with him taking on a new identity. He will join others as people of the way and he will change his name. Saul will become Paul. A friend of Rob's who was a pastor in Los Angeles liked to say about ministry that Everybody wants to change. But nobody everybody wants change, excuse me. Everyone wants change, but no one wants to change. Wanting change and being willing to change, there's a often a gap there. Just imagine for a moment all the changes that this community, this building, this place of St. John's has undergone. If you've seen the old Latrobe watercolor, one of the earliest images of St. John's, it shows it when it was brand new. And in the background, you can see the White House, still partly destroyed from the fires of the British invasion. And there's really not much else around. There, over the decades, has been a great deal of development. And D.C. has changed, so much of our nation has changed, so many of the faces and people of this particular worshiping community have changed. And many of those changes have been for the good, and some for the not so good. Another building that's not too far from here is Mount Vernon, the home of George Washington. Rob spent some time there last week while his parents were in town. And I too am a fan of Mount Vernon and going there, I think it gives you a sense of the humanity of George Washington. This person who has really been built up to this larger than life kind of persona. He's in paintings, he's on our money, he's part of our national ethos. But he too was a real guy, a real person. There's a bust in the collection at Mount Vernon that was made from Washington's life mask. And it's thought to be the best likeness of him because they used his actual face to make it. And so looking at it, you kind of feel like you're actually standing before him. And you might even envy his renown when you're in front of it. Probably except for one thing, his teeth. George Washington had terrible teeth, and it's believed that he lost about a tooth a year. And when he was inaugurated, he only had one of his actual original teeth left. And the rest were dentures. And 18th century dentures were not the best. They have a set of these dentures, also at Mount Vernon. And they were made from a combination of of materials. Horse teeth on the top, teeth from other animals on the bottom, and then there were actually also human teeth in various places as well. They were set in, in metal had wire springs, and they looked pretty horrible. So the most important person in the country had to wear this awful contraption in his mouth. Again, I think that's one example of a way to really ground him and humanize Washington. A visit there also makes it very clear that the privileged life that he and Martha enjoyed would have been completely impossible were it not for the enslaved persons, the hundreds of enslaved persons, who served him over the course of his lifetime. Thank God for the ability to change. Now, Washington never had his own kind of road to Damascus moment when it came to slavery that caused him to do a 180 on his views. We as a nation have, of course, made some changes and are in a much different place than we were in the 1790s when it comes to enslaving other humans. And yet we still have to pray and to work to make sure that some of those changes that have begun continue because centuries later we are still not free from slavery's grip on us as a culture and even as individuals. Going back to the story of Paul's conversion it's a story of hope. When you think about it, they were, you'd be hard-pressed to find worse candidates to be kind of the face of Christianity than Saul. But God saw something within him that probably no one else could and used him to be this agent of change. How much more so if there might be something within us that is capable of change? Maybe aspects of our society that are a little more Saul-like have the possibility of becoming a little more Paul-like, or at least changing. There's often a call for our nation to be a Christian society, and I think that's right, so long as it means for us to not only be merely that in name, but to actually be Christ-like, to be loving and just and compassionate and generous. If there was hope for Saul... I think there's hope for us. Think too about that gospel story that we heard. Maybe try to imagine yourselves on the boat or on the beach just as daybreak is coming. That ended up being a morning full of lots of change too. After the disciples put their net down on the other side, things were different. And it wasn't just measured in the fish that they caught. Peter, in particular, stood on the cusp of change. Up until then, a lot of times when we hear from Peter, he um, is trying to be great, I think, in these very earnest attempts. But it's really this morning on the Sea of Tiberias, on the Sea of Galilee, that he is actually finally starting a journey in which he will become great. And he's moving from being preoccupied with serving his own status to serving others, to feeding Jesus' sheep. I think it's important to remember that both in this story of the disciples on that post-resurrection morning and in Saul's case, it's not a change that they just make on their own. They don't manifest enough willpower um, or make the decision all on their own to make this change. It's only after encountering the Lord, the risen Christ, after encountering God that change really takes root. They listen, they trust, they open themselves up to the holy that's before them and they don't experience this change alone. They had community around them to help them grow into this emerging way of love that they were seeking to follow. We are the inheritors of the way. We are following them too seeking, stumbling, supporting one another, doing our best to keep Christ as our center and Christ as our guide. There's this theological perspective that good theology is not so much about adding more and more things on, but it's actually about taking away. In order to get to what's true about God, it's really a matter of stripping away all that's not true, all the extra so that what you're left with is the really real. Think about how Michelangelo Michelangelo or another sculptor chips away at the stone until all that's left is this kind of work of art. Maybe that's one of our invitations this morning, to strip away all the distractions, the fears, the jealousies, those things that keep us from the love of God that keep us from being the people that God would have us be. That has been the work of people of faith since the beginning of time, and it's the work that's before us, too. So let us walk together and follow Christ. Amen.